0: So let 2024 be your best year yet. Visit Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M to sign up and receive $50 off your device. That's Soberlink.com forward slash T-A-M. And let accountability be your guide. Hello, everyone. I'm very excited today about our guest, Stephen Buckby. I met Stephen Buckby approximately, probably about 10 years ago at my first Virginia Satir global conference. It was quite an amazing experience.
1: Most of my experience going to clinical conferences was, you know, having the keynote speaker stand up on stage, have PowerPoints, listen, you get a lot of good knowledge and everything. But what I didn't expect was the experiential component of Virginia Satir's work to be expressed in a conference. And I was really blown away. And Steve and his colleagues did an amazing job talking about
0: the mandala and using that as a way to facilitate change. So I'm very excited to have him on the podcast today. And I hope you
1: guys enjoy it. Steve Buckby is one amazing guy. Welcome, Steve, to the Addicted Mind podcast. I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're going to be my guest. you want to introduce yourself?
2: It's a pleasure. Thanks for asking. My name's Steve Buckby. I live in a little town called Escanaba, Michigan, which is in the upper peninsula of Michigan. I'm a certified social worker and a licensed professional counselor, and I've been at that for since the early 70s.
1: Oh, wow. That's awesome. So you have a lot of experience.
2: Yes, I've had in many different contexts, both outpatient, inpatient, and then later on as a teacher. It was certainly a t- subject that I think has a lot to do. It's, I mean, in the sense of development, there's a lot more coming down the road.
1: Right, right. So tell me a little bit about, because one of the things that I know that you do is Virginia Satir is a big influence on you. And what I really want to know about is how you use the Satir model and, and Virginia's work in dealing with people specifically who are struggling with addictive processes, or drugs, or alcohol, or addictive behavior, or anything like that?
2: I think the biggest thing, obviously, is, first of all, getting people to the point where they want to deal with an issue. Right, And then the secondary is, what do you do then? So I think one of our jobs as a therapist is to guide them through the process of change. I mean, Satir talked about literally a process of change, that there's a status quo, And there are dimensions in that status quo, the physical, spiritual, emotional, that she called the mandala, right? So that human beings have a particular balance. That's the status quo. And people learn to live in their addictions, right?
1: Right, yeah, definitely.
2: Something comes in their life that says, you know, I want to change this or so I have to change this, whatever. And that's called a foreign element. And a foreign element comes into that system and now there's chaos. And so people can vacillate along with their addictions from a status quo to chaos for long periods of time. Right. Our job as therapists is to help people guide them into their chaos, to be with them in their process, and realize that resistance is going to be a normal process because we're asking, in many cases, is for people to give up their lover. It's like right. Cooper Ross talked about the stages of grief, and it's really, in that, in many senses, that process as well. I mean, you know, it's not a coincidence, I don't think, that Satir and Kuba Ross gave lectures together, because both of their processes really, in some senses, were about healing. Right. The final right. stage of Kuba Ross's thing is acceptance, and the final stage of the process of change is a new status quo. So the action is in us as therapists teaching people to really walk into this place of chaos, giving up a lover. Right, and right. How do you then fill out your life? What are you going to do? What do you need? What resources? And a lot of people don't know what resources they have.
1: And it's a lot like, you know, when someone's struggling with addiction, that's the way they cope with life. So the chaos has to get, you know, they have this status quo of how they're living, even with their addiction. And that chaos has to get pretty big, I would imagine, to like move them into, you know, making that change.
2: Well, I think that's the beginning place. I think that's where often people enter into therapy. Okay. Some dimension of their mind, or their personal dimension, has been affected. Either they have a spiritual crisis, or they have a physical crisis, or they get in a car accident, or you know, their nutritional part is so abused in the sense that they're malnourished, or it depends on the drug they're using.
1: Right. right. Right.
2: But what happens is finally the status quo is no longer viable, and this thing called a foreign element is pushes them and the foreign element again could be anything could be a wife saying i'm leaving it could be right. i tripped the dog or i got fired from my job whatever but now this person's in chaos and they're scared, and our job in the process is to a, appreciate that that's a loss issue. And what we need to do is find people, help people, first of all, grieve this particular loss. And there's that process that Russ and again talked about is that there's a denial and there's a tense to bargain and all those wonderful things because people really want to go back to where it was. You know, that's right, what relapse right. is about, right? Relapse is about people trying to. You know, I'll just have one drink or two drinks. And then pretty soon you find that there's a physiological thing kicks in and they're back to where they were old patterns.
1: Right. So that even they have that, you know, like you're kind of talking about the grieving process that if they're leaving this addiction behind, that it's actually they want to fight all against that.
2: Yes. It's very confusing for people. You know, one of the things that you called, it is there's a limbo period. People are in chaos, and they don't know what the right choice is. So they're going to make, oftentimes, choices that they've made in the past that didn't work. They tend to choose the familiar versus the unknown. And so our job is to help them look at the unknown, right? And also to look at those issues which trigger these relapses that people have. And, you know, there's all kinds of ways of defining sobriety, I guess. My thinking is when people are doing better, some people are never going to do total sobriety because it's not within their realm.
1: Right. Is I, that so more like a kind of harm reduction approach.
2: Absolutely. But, you know, the job of the therapist is to help people address this chaos and deal with this loss, help them make more effective choices. And again, every time they make a choice, they're going to have a loss of some kind, right? Because all choices involve loss.
1: Right. Exactly. It sounds yep. like really, you know, using this model is really meeting the client exactly where they're at and letting them have a real decision-making process and where they actually want to be
2: yeah well you know one of the things that really strikes me is that when Virginia talked about therapy she said therapy isn't something you do to somebody it's something you do with them oh so yeah when you're talking about it in that way I would think obviously our job is to help facilitate better choices but ultimately the responsibility is the clients
1: right right No, that makes total sense how do you help you know using the Satire model You know, if a client is resistant to change, how do you kind of help them move through that change process? What might you do to get them to kind of say, you know, hey, I might need to look at this?
2: You know, I think the first thing you start with, I really do, is education. People don't know much about their compulsions and addiction. I think giving them information that is valid or viable to them is a place to start. People have to, in many cases, become self-informed. Because it's, again, their issue. So the more they, if you say you have cancer, then people often want to learn more about cancer. It's the same thing with addictions. And again, not all addictions are the same. And so I'm thinking that one of the jobs we have is to, first of all, give them a better understanding of what they're contending with. You know, if you're talking about coming off, for example, let's say you're using meth, which is, I think, a very powerful a drug that affects two dimensions that people really want to experience something in and that is the intellectual spiritual thing Mm -hmm. and what happens then is that you know again and once you get that buzz they're never going to get that same spot again but they're going to keep trying to get that spot again right And so what we have to tell people is, first of all, this is what's happening. This is what's happened to your physiology. This is what's happened to your head. And so that they understand that the urges and drives they get are natural. And then giving them strategies to identify what these triggers are is a starting place.
1: Right. It kind of sounds like as you educate them about the disease and how it's impacting them physically It actually kind of helps them separate it from their person like this is something that's happening to you and in your brain and
2: absolutely I tell you you know one of the things I said I don't probably a thousand times is you're not your ism right and you're not your ick when people spell alcoholic again Joseph Martin used to talk about how people end the spelling with an ICK alcoholic so you're not your diagnosis
1: Right. That sounds extremely empowering to someone because a lot of times, you know, when I have clients coming in and they've made some really choices that have gone against all of their value system. I mean, you know, they really feel like they've betrayed the people they care about. They've betrayed themselves and they can be so hard on themselves.
2: And they have. And that's really true. And that's where your issue and my issue is to help them forgive. Right forgiveness is probably one of the most difficult things for people to do is to forgive their own transgressions.
1: Yeah, I, I would totally agree with that. And that's why, you know, like one thing I love about the Virginia is here is just the stance of compassion and self-compassion that she expresses. It makes it really safe for any client to kind of be able to talk about these things that, you know, we don't want to look at because they're just painful.
2: Right. And it's also positive directional. You're not looking at what you did. the next question is, okay, that happened. Let's go. What do we need to do to make it different? What strategies can we create that fit for you? So that when you're in that process point, you know, we're helping them try to make new choices that they can integrate. But they're going to find out sometimes that these things that they do as they practice them, so they're going to fail. And so then we say, okay, so let's move on. It's always positive directional. You can't, wouldn't it be fantastic if we could go back and change anything? We had an undo button.
1: That would be awesome. I'd
2: love it. It <laughs> doesn't exist. Yeah, so I know. On is to let go of those things that we have no control over. The story is not the problem, right? The meaning of the story is really important.
1: But I can totally understand that. It's like really – so in a way, helping them shift that meaning in a positive direction. And it really sounds like, okay, you learn from your past. You get the value from your past, but we're not going to stay there because, at a certain point, it doesn't serve you anymore. It doesn't what, serve you at all. Right, and I love that idea of like really staying in the positive, especially, you know, for addicts who have been using a substance or a behavior, they've been using that to escape their pain that they have already. You know, That's they right. already have so much pain, and right. you know, most of the time, you know, what I see with addiction is most of the people that come in have a lot of trauma in their past, you know, neglect or abuse of some sort, or, you know, loss of a parent or some kind of traumatic event earlier in their life. Not everyone, but that seems like the majority of it. And they've been carrying that pain around with them for so long, and they don't know how to let it go.
2: Yeah, and people want to matter. And so what we do is, you know, the hardest thing we do is we hide parts of ourselves that we really don't need to hide, and especially people who have addictions, you know, they never tell the story to begin with, and then when they do tell the story, if they do, they're so ashamed of it that they get stuck in it. I don't know how to explain that, but what we need to do is say, it's okay to be vulnerable. Right. Now, what did you learn? How can we move forward? That kind of thing is—vulnerability uh, for people with is very, very, very difficult, I think, because they're afraid. People are just afraid often of, of making new choices and changes. Mm-hmm. They're afraid of often being alone. People want to matter. Ultimately, bottom line, people want to matter. Right. And Addiction, whether people like it or not, is a way that people have it dysfunctionally, often, to try to matter. That's the way they try to stay in the game. Right? So we have to find a different way to stay in the game or whatever it is that they want to stay into without becoming self-destructive. You know, one of the things to try to understand is what do you gain from this use? What do you gain from this behavior, right? There are things that people gain. So the next question is, if you gain this, what are you going to do in order to do that again? How are you going to gain what you want without using this process?
1: Right. So I was really asking him to kind of dig in and look at it at a deeper level. What I found a lot with addicts, too, is, you know, they get so focused around the pleasure of the addiction that they lose sight of what that is actually covering up, if that makes sense. It's like,
2: oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. But there's also a fear of being, again, that the vulnerability piece comes up. And I think that's one of our jobs as therapists is we obviously try to talk people, walk people into this vulnerability. When they get scared and resistant, our job is to say, okay, now, what do you need to go forward?
1: Right, right.
2: What do you need to have at this point in time? Otherwise, what happens is, they again, that trigger gets ha- triggered, and then they begin to do whatever their pattern is. Does that make
1: sense? Yeah, no, I totally get that. You know, one of the things that our agency is that we are very focused on meeting the client where they're at. And what we found, too, is, you know, clients, they'll be working really, really hard and they may have a slip or a little relapse and they don't want to tell us. And what we're always telling them is like, you know what, if you slip or you relapse or something happens, you know, we're here for you. We're going to learn from it. We're going to understand it and making that environment so accepting it allows them to be vulnerable because they already feel so horrible about themselves as it is that you know you're just going to say you know what no matter what we're going to be here for you and we're going to help you and we're going to hold you and we're going to work through this stuff
2: oh yeah and i do believe that support systems are very i don't care what support people use Mm -hmm. because there's all kinds of you know ideological differences from AA to narcotics, to do it by yourself, to suck it up and hang on. But I do believe, though, is people need to be connected to other people. that when you're talking about isolation and, and addictions, it never comes out well.
1: Yes, I agree.
2: It never comes out well. So I think that what happens, one of the things is that, you know, that's why clients tend to fall in love with you, because oftentimes it's the first person they've ever been straight with. It's the first person they begin to believe that, oh, it's you that they can do this for. But the reality is they begin then to generalize that, that they can make connections with other people. They can take risks that they haven't taken. So really, in fact, there's a process of people need to have support systems. I really believe that that's important to them. And I don't care how that manifests itself in a sense of how they do it, whether it's riding with a group of people or whatever it is they do. I think that support systems are very good, and uh, I like
1: it. Yeah, definitely. I have definitely seen, you know, at our agency, too, we have a lot of support groups. And sometimes that space is the most intimate space that these clients have, Are these support groups. And a lot of them, you know, stay in these support groups for a year or two years or even three years because, in some ways, this is the most intimate place in their life. But what's amazing to watch is exactly what you're saying, how they begin to take that out to other people. And, and their circle you, grows bigger.
2: Yeah, and in your context, you have the possibility of creating many family systems where people, you know, when you talk about Virginia Satir's work on family reconstruction, that people will begin to manifest in the groups that you're running the same sorts of patterns that they did in their families, which allows you the opportunity to begin to disrupt patterns that exists and that's the nice thing about it it can be done in a nice supportive sort of way you know yeah because
1: they really get to know each other and that stuff will just come out it comes out in the group and when they have a strong enough group they actually start to recognize it it's pretty fascinating to watch
2: well i think it's very powerful and and, then you look at you know i again am a fan of virginia Satir's and some of the models that she gave us to work with like the process of change and something called the iceberg theory as well as the stances In the process of doing group, it's really possible for people to become aware of how they use various stances to cope. Rather than being able to be congruent and vulnerable, what they might do is placate people. They might say yes when they mean no. And in order to become more congruent, they need to be able to say, here's what I need. Here's what I'm asking for. And so you're really trying to give people more power for themselves. And in that support process, I think they can prosper. I just say that. In the sense of groups, I think are very powerful, and if they're working right, I think can be some of the most powerful vehicles for therapy.
1: Oh, I definitely agree, and you know, I can kind of share my own personal experience with some of Virginia's work, where you know, I came from a very academic background, and you know, I would go to conferences, and everybody was a keynote speaker and and stuff like that, and everybody sat and listened, and then I remember coming to my first Virginia Satir conference. And it was such an amazing experience, because it was all experiential. And people were interacting. And it was amazing to watch that process. And I'm like, wow, this is powerful. And really being able to take that back to all the clients and work with the clients in that way is just extremely powerful.
2: I think that part of the powerful part, and I really agree with you, but it's pretty much my experience. I mean, I got hooked on their ideas in 1985. And I don't I think it changed my life and certainly the way I do therapy. Because what she was really saying is be real, right? Yes. The velveteen rabbit thing here. You know you have to be real, you have to meet people as people. And the better and more congruent you are as a therapist, the better off it's gonna be. Yes. And take care of your self care for therapists is pretty important too. A lot of the things that I find people who are in the recovery business are also people who have issues themselves. And I find historically that they aren't real good in taking care of their own needs. They're great at taking care of others. But in yes. many cases, they don't spend enough time taking care of their own. And I think there's an urgency though. I think it's done out of love. I think there's an urgency that they really want to have um, harmony, they want people to do better. And in some senses, they spend themselves in that
1: effort. Does that oh, make sense? Yeah. you're Speaking to the choir on that one, I totally get it. And as, as I've experienced and grown as a therapist, you know, I yeah, I absolutely agree with you. You know, most of us who get into helping other people in addictions are looking back at our own life as well and taking all this learning. That's one of the beautiful things of helping everybody is you also, if you can do it, you can help yourself along the way, which is great. Oh,
2: Many right. of us get in this business because we were kind of bored into it. Yes, <laughs> I,
1: I agree. You know, I totally agree.
2: You no, know, I, I tell people I was kind of a born social worker in my family. Right. <laughs> exactly.
1: Of exactly. So what yeah. would you say if someone was listening to this podcast, you know, and they're struggling with addiction, what would you tell what would be their first step? What would you say to them in this moment?
2: Well, you know, I'll just say this. If there's already an awareness, if there's a struggle, then that voice needs to be paid attention to rather than silenced. When people are at that point where there's that anxiety about or they're thinking there might be a problem, then probably that needs to be paid attention to. And the idea is they deserve that. They deserve yeah. to give them time to pay attention. I find, however, that people are so darn busy that they don't have enough time to pay attention. So they get into seriously bad habits. They get into coping patterns. You know, and so one of the things is is, is to slow them down. Slow some people down. Give them some time to take a look at themselves. You know, and I don't think that in our society is not something we really encourage. This whole, I really tell you one of the trends I do like, and that's this whole mindfulness idea. Right. Yeah.
1: I so, love that as well, too.
2: You know, so if you're saying, you know, how do people start, I would say be mindful of you. Be mindful of you. It's not selfish to take care of yourself, it's not a bad thing.
1: That is awesome, Steve. Thanks so much for coming on and talking for a little bit here about this and sharing your wisdom. If anybody wants to get a hold of you, how could they reach you or find you or ask you a question?
2: My email is sbuckbee, that's B U C K B E E, at Charter, dot net. That's dot net.
1: Great. So thank you so much for being a part of this. And everybody, I will have all that information in the show notes, and you'll be able to go there. You can go to theaddictedmind.com and find all the resources there. All right. Take care, everybody. Thank you.
0: I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Addicted Mind podcast. Please support us by going to iTunes and leaving us a review. Every little bit helps. Also, if you'd like to support us directly, you can go to our
1: Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash theaddictedmind. There you can
0: support us directly and help offset the cost of producing this podcast and help us get this information to everybody who needs it. So take care,
1: have a wonderful day,
0: and I'll see you next week.